Um, so, autism and well-being. This is um, a new topic for me, uh, at least the intersection of the two. Um, and I think uh, from a look at the literature, both uh, philosophical and empirical, it is just a new topic. Uh, there isn't much being written or discussed. Um, um, perhaps just to tell you where I come from, I've been writing a whole thesis about 100,000 words on well-being, uh, which I finished in 2003, and there was not one single word, word on well-being for people with disabilities and, for example, autism. And that was quite unfortunate as at some point I became parent to such a child with autism and that posed very, very concrete questions which uh, I definitely could not turn to my thesis to find <laughs> answers to. Um, so that, that has prompted, prompted me to sort of um, have a look at it again. And as I went back to it, sort of, well-being, I realized that I might have um, had to do things a bit different in my head if what I wanted to do was answering very concrete questions about, in particular, uh, individuals about whom um, we cannot make the same kinds of assumptions that we tend to do when we're talking about well-being for normal population. Uh, and I think the exercise might actually prove uh, um, interesting uh, applying it back uh, to normal population. My teacher something about, I think in particular, the epistemology of our well-being claims. So in this paper, um, I will start by sort of doing a little philosophy, um, discussing a distinction in the philosophy of well-being, which I think has been uh, under-discussed and I think is somewhat relevant to what I'm going to say later about well-being and autism. And then um, I will sketch what I think is a very practical theory of well-being, practical as opposed to theoretical. Um, and then I'll give you a brief introduction to autism and then we'll discuss the challenges. I warn you this may be going a bit over time, so I will basically kill you. Um, let me just get going now. So the distinction I have in mind uh, is a distinction between, between two kinds of well-being ascriptions and um, there are, I think, uh, well-being ascriptions that we do find in, in, in common language. Uh, the first one is what I call prudential claims and the point or function of these claims is to identify, identify the kinds of things that benefit or good for someone, or harmful or bad for someone. And they also individuate which of two options is better for one, or to use Roger's formulation of the same thought, which actions most further well-being, or what's most rational to do self-interestedly. Um, there are theories that systematize these kinds of well-being ascriptions. I will call them prudential theories, and they tend to tell us in virtue of what property something is prudentially good. And I think these are the usual suspects, hedonism, desire satisfaction, and I think objective list theories. I won't tell you what these are, I assume you know. Um, the second kind of well-being ascription is what I'll call here good life as a shorthand. Um, 
And let me note right at the start that I won't be talking here about perfectionism. You'll probably see that in a second. Um, the point of function of, function of these um, um, kind of well-being inscriptions is to make claims to the effect that life meets standards of a good life or a minimally good life or a bad life or a life that is not worth living or an ideal life. So as you see, this is not quite the same as, as perfectionism, I think. Um, now, the important word here is standards. And the fact that in order to make such well-being ascriptions, we need to appeal to standards is precisely what uh, drives the wedge between this kind of ascriptions and the former first type of well-being ascriptions. Um, let me also note some things about these standards. Uh, they are particularly relevant, I think, uh, from, but not exclusively, from a third personal point of view, uh, and in particular from a benefactor point of view, but also, uh, for example, from a political point of view. I mean, if you, if you take, for example, uh, capabilities theories of well-being, it seems to me that they're going for some minimal, uh, minimally good life. Uh, you know, those kind of things that must be uh, in, in a person's life in order for us to say that this person is having a minimally good life, not an excellent or even a good life. Um, there's a question of authority. Who's determining these standards? Um, and I think, actually, when you think uh, about these questions, a, a lot of disagreements about objectivity and subjectivity will, will be sort of viewed in a different light. Um, so typically, it may be the community, sort of conventions, or it may be the individual's own preferences, or it may be more permanent facts about human nature. What I'd like to highlight here is that one may take nuanced positions about, sort of at the normative level, who should determine what standards. And in particular, you may think that, you know, to go back to, to the political case, um, it may not be so important that subjects play a determining role in, in, in establishing standards when what we're trying to do is politically determine minimal, minimally good life standards. However, a subjective point of view of sub the subject's contribution may, may, may be much more important if, if maybe we're going for a determination of you know, the good life or the ideal life. I mean, this is just uh, something to keep in mind. Um, um, and of course, the standards are partly determined by the purposes of those who need to set them. Um, are there theories that systematize these type of claims? I think modern versions of Aristotelianism are, even when they're not uh, supposed to be um, perfectionist, um, and I think Sumner's life satisfaction theory of um, well-being or happiness is also such a, a theory. But I won't be arguing for this. We can take it up later if you want. Now, these two kinds of well-being ascriptions are distinct. <coughs> uh, but as we'll see in a second, they're also connected. So uh, we can make uh, the first kind of claim without saying anything about the second kind of claim. Um, um, for example, 
um, if you're a hedonist, uh, you can say that uh, pleasure is the only thing that contributes to a person's um, well-being without saying anything about how much pleasure uh, you need to have in order for you to uh, count as having a good life or a minimally good life or an excellent life. So what kind of surplus of pleasure you ought to have. So there are, there is, you can do the first thing without doing the second. And the difference here is that if you want to do the second, you're going to have to make some kind of an appeal to standards. If you're a hedonist, out of coherence, you're going to have to give us some story about the amount of surplus of pleasure or pain. And the same story can be, called, can be told for desire satisfaction theories. You're going to have to tell us what amount of, or you know, what kinds of desires have to be um, sort of satisfied as opposed to frustrated. Similarly, one can answer the second question without, you know, without answering the first one. So, you, you know, we, um, I can tell you when a life is a good life without telling what kinds of things are good. This is more tricky, uh, but uh, I think, for example, if you take Sumner's life, life satisfaction theory, you can sort of do this kind of uh, thing. Um, I won't go into this. I'm happy to illustrate in the discussion. Um, however, these two kinds of ascriptions are connected and uh, they are ultimately about the single concept of well-being in which I believe, unlike some, of some people in this room. Um, and as I just said, the hedonist out of coherence will have to appeal to pleasure in the absence of pain when you know, telling you something about standards of the good life, the excellent life, etc. And I think there's also um, a connection that comes to the fore when you look at the structure of the normativity of well-being. And this is illustrated by this example. Uh, suppose that hedonism were true, sorry. Um, your doctor tells you that you are ill and face a choice with two options. A, a life with a lot of pain, so there's potential disvalue, and B, a life with even more pain than in A then you still don't know um, what you ought potentially to choose unless you have some idea of how much uh, pain is too much. So how much pain is so much that you think that your life is unlivable. If both pains, if both options, A and B, involve too much pain, sort of you sort of they don't make it. They, they make it the case that you won't take your life to be even minimally good, even worth a life worth living. Then a third option will dynamically enter your deliberative agenda. You start considering other options, and this may be the potential option for you. So this is how the normativity is connected. Um, so you, you, you couldn't take a decision un until, until you know something about your standards in this case. So uh, now, what theory will be? And now I'm, I'm slowly, slowly beginning to move towards autism and, and how theories of well-being are challenged by, by this um, condition. So um, I'm sort of unsatisfied with uh, many of the theories on offer uh, today, including the one I had defended in my thesis at length. Um, 
So it seems to me that uh, theories such, such as hedonism or desire satisfaction may be good enough at the, as prudential theories, so sort of systematizing the first kind of well-being ascriptions. But this, it seems to me that these theories do not fare as well uh, when we are asking for standards, when we move to the second kind of well-being ascriptions. It seems to me that they always end up being somewhat uh, untrue to phenomenology uh, reductive uh, in, in, in a sort of in a way that is unjustified. Uh, with a note regarding hedonism, because I think that there is some plausibility to hedonism <coughs> when you're, when you're looking at, at standards for a minimally good life, as the example I just gave about you know j just a second ago. So you know we do tend to think that a life that contains too much pain or suffering is unlivable. Perhaps hedonism is is plausible in that respect, but I think even hedonism has trouble uh, when you're thinking about you know, various kinds of standards, and I think about, for example, the ideally ideal life, so for example, you know, what, are you gonna, what's, what story are you going to tell us as a hedonist when you're trying to tell me what would be your ideal life, not, not, not limited by your present circumstances, but ideally? Uh, you know, you're just going to have to give us a story in terms of so much pleasure over over pain it just doesn't seem to to do the work uh, to me um, what we tend to do when we try to answer that question i believe and this is quite crucial for me so questions about standards is we look back at the very things the very activities the very states the very interactions uh, the very sources of well-being that make up um, sort of that with which we are occupied um, um, so in short it seems to me that when you when you look at theories and theorizing about well-being today um, this this sort of this model is is the way we we, we go on um, you know writing our theories so we start with some commonsensical or refined ideas probably passed on by culture about what activities, namely what states or experiences or interactions or conditions of one's life contribute to well-being. So, so we have some idea about what the sources of well-being are already to start with. Then we make categories. You know, we say, oh, okay, we can sort of categorize all these various things under these headings here. Knowledge, achievement, exercising, autonomy, virtue, pleasure, satisfaction. And then uh, the next thing we do is we attempt a kind of reduction uh, some of us want to go all the way and tell and tell us, you know, and, and and sort of argue for the conclusion that it is just one of these things that uh, is the, the determining property of, of well-being. Others are a bit more generous and you know give an objective list. Uh, and there's also other options. You know, you may be a desire satisfaction theorist and think that all of these things, what they have in common, is the fact that they satisfy our desires. Um, and then after that, um, we find out about various standards, and I think that's also a place where these theories um, are not as satisfying. Um, now, I think we have a particular problem, as I mentioned right at the start, when we can't, we do not, we cannot make the same kind of, of assumptions. Uh, and we cannot use culture in the same way uh, 
when the population about whom we are asking the well-being questions, you know, what kinds of things are good for these individuals, is not the normal population, and in particular, the autistic population, which as we, uh, we as we will see, is is sort of very specific cognitive and emotional uh, features. Um, so I think if we are sort of interested in finding out about what makes these individuals' life better or good, uh, then we need to start from scratch and, and make very clear what our epistemology is. You know, what's the epistemology of well-being claims? And I've come up with this list. And somehow it ties in with uh, the discussion we just had with, with Martin just before on neuroscience. Um, we're going to have to look at um, individual and species relative facts about biology and psychology. We're going to have to look at their seeking and avoiding behavior. We're going to have to look at their intrinsic desires. We're going to have to look at whether pleasure or pain supervenes on this or that activity. Uh, and if, if the, the individuals we're, we're studying and, and trying to understand are articulate enough, we're going to have to ask whether they find this activity or that, that activity fulfilling, rewarding. Um, if these individuals uh, have sort of interacted, they've developed the culture with competent judges about what kinds of things are good, uh, are good for them, we have, we're going to have to tap into that kind of culture. Um, and also, as I perhaps will tell you in a second, well, later on, we're going to also have to um, see to what uh, degree they have developed the capacities they have. So it, it sounds like a bit of a perfectionist element here. I hope I have the time to develop it a bit further later on. So let, just, let me just say that these are epistemic criteria. These are all things that are going to point to those things in these people's lives, those very concrete things, those very concrete activities, interactions, eating, whatever it is, that are making these people's life better or worse. So they don't function as determining properties as they normally do in, in theories of well-being. They're just epistemic aids. Um, so this is the beginning, the first step of the view I'm trying to develop. Uh, once we have found out about the sources of well-being for these particular individuals, for most practical purposes, it is unnecessary to make categories or attempt reductions, as we normally tend to do. Perhaps we want to do that for theoretical purposes, but for practical purposes, I think we might not need to do that. And I'm happy if you challenge me there. Uh, why? Because an individual's well-being is substantially constituted by these very activities, or better, by particular arrangements of them. These are the things we ought to pursue in and for themselves and under the idea of well-being. Um, finally, on the approach I'm trying to take, an individual's well-being is measured against whatever specific standards, ideal life, minimally good life, etc., that it fulfills or fails to fulfill. Standards are more or less fixed arrangements of the goods above. Right, so now I'll move on to autism. Um, I'm going to have to be quite brief. Um, so today autism is diagnosed after two criteria. The first criterion uh, is about uh, persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction 
manifested by all three of the following deficit in social emotional reciprocity um, for example reduced sh or sharing of interests or emotions deficit in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction eye contact body language lack of verbal nonverbal integration fa facial expression and deficits in developing and maintaining relationships appropriate to developmental level difficulties adjusting behavior to suit different social contexts making friends apparent absence of interest in people and then a second criterion applies and this is restricted repetitive patterns of behavior interest or activities is manifested by at least two of the following i think they pretty much say the same thing uh, so the the subject has to display at least two of these uh, it's just basically repetitive behavior or you know fixations if you like the last one is perhaps uh, worth of notice and it's just a very new one that has been included and it's hyper hypo reactivity to sensory aspects of environment for, for example apparent indifference to pain heat cold or adverse response to specific sounds textures etc so well-being is an urgent issue so if you look at the last column on the right uh, you see how the, the prevalence of autism, these are data from the United States, has increased. So in 2000 it was one out of 150, now these children uh, born in 2000, 150 was diagnosed, in 2008 it's one out of 88. Uh, a statistician friend from August University tells me that given the current rate, even if the rate uh, doesn't, the, the prevalence rate does not increase, um, once the older generations will die out uh, so in about 25 years um, the prevalence of autistic individuals in, in our society Britain, Denmark it's, it's a similar numbers is going to be 3 to 4 percent so it is quite um, an urgent problem and something that is also quite important is that uh, their IQ for, for what it is worth um, you see from this graph anything below the yellow line is uh, under normal below normal IQ so it you know for any uh, individual with autism there is a 50 to 70 percent chance that their IQ is is below normal um, this however it must be said and uh, it's I think one of the things that is particularly uh, interesting with autism is that their IQ profile is, is, is quite unlike, for example, the IQ profile of someone with Down syndrome. There the profile is sort of just flat, all around below normal and flat. Um, autistic, a typical autistic individual's IQ is going to be more like this. So there are th certain things that they are very good at, way above average. Other things are just catastrophic. Um, so um, it was at this point I wanted you to read uh, the paper, but you don't need to do that because sort of the handout I've distributed, but you don't need to do this because I think we're running out of time. It was just a beautiful excerpt from Stephen Jay Gold, who is a very um, famous evolutionary theorist, whose son has, has, uh, has autism and, and uh, basically Cole describes his son as being uh, one of these uh, savants. He, he is one of these uh, day-date calculators. He can calculate 
what day um, you were born, you know, you know, just by by you telling him what what year and you know what what your birthday, and he'll tell you it was a Monday in 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 a fraction of seconds, even if it was fifty or seventy five years ago, and he can do that even if it was a thousand years ago. They just have uh, figure out algorithms, which have taken mathematicians quite a few um, um, trials to figure out, and it's just impossible for most people to do that at the same speed. The interesting thing is that the very same individual. Uh, would not understand that when he's going out to buy a soda drink, he's going to have to pay with the bill and he's going to have to get money back. So they don't understand that, you know, if they pay 50 cents for their, um, you know, if they give a dollar and the, the drink is 50 cents, they don't understand they need to get 50 cents back. And the same people will not be able to lead independent lives, so they need someone to assist them. Uh, Along with these people, there's just also people that are completely non-verbal, uh, that do not have any sort of recognizable gift, you know, bright day-date calculators, that are hypersensitive to some sensory inputs, etc. So, um, given the diagnosis, for example, all these um, deficits compared to normal populations that they display with regard to you know, interacting socially. Um, one obvious question to ask is, are social interactions a prudential good for these individuals in the same way or to the same degree mm -hmm. as they typically are for non-autistic individuals? I mean, we sort of simply assume uh, when it comes to us, and now it's been confirmed that the science of object objective well-being or subjective well-being that, you know, social interactions are good for us, but are they good for them? I mean, and this is this comes as as a very practical question as a as a you know for a parent uh, because um, you know that you can do something as a parent to train uh, social skills. For example, you can try to train away other traits of your child. Uh, for example, the you know some of the repetitive behaviors which tend to be obstructive to their having social interactions. But the question is, what's best for them? Uh, and here I use that list of epistemic aids or defeasible criteria to answer that kind of question. And uh, for example, you know, when you look at the first one, so individual and species relative facts about biology or psychology, you will have to ask, is there a capacity for social interactions? And what, for what kind of social interaction? the same kind as us. I mean, I'm going to have to tell this story now. I mean, I've talked to this uh, young man, must be someone in his 20s, uh, with high-functioning, um, actually it's Asperger's syndrome, so it's a sort of, just, just called high-functioning autism. And he says, one, one, one thing I really don't get about neurotypicals, as we are called for them, is how they can just get together and be together. I mean, it's not the case in English, but the Danish language even has sort of a verb, hygge, sort of be together without doing anything in particular, but just being together and sort of being happy that we're together. You know, you chit-chat, do nothing in particular. And this guy was saying, this drives me nuts. I mean, I can't be together with someone just like that. I, if I am together, it's because we do something together. Then. That's a good interaction for him. He derives pleasure out of it. He seeks that kind of interaction, and 
you know, to some degree. They can't be too much either because they're still stressful for many things. But, you know, that's the kind of social interactions they can conceive of. So, once again, uh, seeking avoiding behavior, is there an interest um, or avoidance and to what aspects of social interactions? Intrinsic desires. Do they engage in these activities out of habit, out of duty, or because they present themselves to them as being good? Uh, does pleasure or pain supervene on these activities? Uh, can we ask them whether they find these activities fulfilling, rewarding, enriching, etc.? And then culture. I mean, autistic culture is only beginning to develop now for higher functioning autists through the internet mainly, because actually this is internet for them is one of the best thing that you know, because they can have a lot of social interaction on their own terms. We don't have to see people in the face, etc., etc. Et I mean, this guy told me the best thing that happened to me was Facebook. Um, so, autism and well-being. Uh, Conceptual issues, this is the, we're still going to go on a bit. I mean, actually, I've talked about this. Um, friendship. I mean, we, we tend to have a certain idea of friendship. The psychologists have broken it down into five elements, and five functional elements, companionship, conflict, help, security, closeness. That's what friendship is to most of us, apparently. Um, but when asked uh, high-functioning autistic children about 10 years of age in England, uh, it seems that to them uh, friendship is really about companionship, sort of the thing. My friend and I spend a lot of time, a lot of our free time together. But unlike uh, their peers, neurotypical peers, uh, friendship to them is not about help or closeness. So that's that's a kind of thing I think we need to know more about in order to understand what's good for them. Um, I'll skip over this. Um, and then, of course, there are certain specific problems that apply when, when the subjects at hand um, are really low functioning. So, you know, we can't have much of an interaction. And here I would like to draw your attention on the last, um, on the last, uh, element, occupation or everyday life activity corresponding to level of capacity. I mean, you know, some of these kids that are institutionalized are just sitting there, uh, not being activated at all. And you do wonder whether anyone has tried to understand whether they can do more than just sitting there, um, whether they have those capacities. And it seems to me this doesn't need to be seen in perfectionist terms. I mean, it may be that sort of developing or exercising this capacity is going to be something that, you know, we'll have evidence that is good for them. You know, they might find pleasure or, you know, uh, pleasure may supervene. So we may have signs that these other activities, if they were activated, would be good for them. Now, we'll be close to finishing. It was just another sort of challenge to tra more traditional theories over being that I think the theory I've sketched doesn't fall prey to and this is sort of the sort of idea of of basing your theory on, on normal conceptions of humanity or human well-being or making a theory of well-being that is way too intellectualized that so that it excludes by definition that 
say individuals with being are capable of of happiness or human human happiness I mean one beautiful example of a theory that excludes by definition um, um, autistic individuals is this theory by uh, Daniel Russell it's a book from 2012 happiness for humans and this is the the four features that he thinks are, are quite well that are necessary or essential to his theory and then at some point he says number two a happy life is one the subject finds fulfilling and most and must really be fulfilling and then when he elaborates on that he writes someone incapable of loving others or emotionally childish for instance might have a life that is fulfilling for him as it can be given that unique makeup of his but would not point to his life as a good example of happiness it's certainly no life one would wish on a friend if that is so, then we, we can understand happiness only by keeping in view that it is happiness for humans that we are talking about. Um, this is not to confuse human happiness with human perfection. So basically, uh, many autistic individuals will, not, will be considered by the rest of us as emotionally childish. There isn't much they can do about that, however. Uh, but if that's true, according to this theory, they can't have happiness for humans what they can have is happiness for something else, for autistics. Um, but, you know, that's, um, that, that makes you think. I mean, um, on the one hand, you want to say that, perhaps, but on the other hand, um, it does seem to me that, at least genetically speaking, uh, these individuals are also you, human. I'll skip uh, um, these are the points. It's uh, another example of a theory that is over-intellectualized and excludes by definition um, um, the point, excludes by definition autistic population. And I'll finish with this uh, quote uh, by uh, Paul Collins, who says, autists are described by others and by themselves as aliens among humans, but there's an irony to this, for precisely the opposite is true. They are us. And to understand them is to begin to understand what it means to be human. Think of it. A disability is usually defined in terms of what's missing, but autism is as much about what is abundant as what is missing. An overexpression on the very traits that make our species unique. Other animals are social, but only humans are capable of abstract logic. The autistic outhuman the humans, and we can scarcely recognize the result. Um, so I think if, if you take sort of if you take this kind of line, which is obviously true only of certain in autistic individuals, uh, then you would want to say that you know autists should also be considered as you know potentially at least having uh, uh, as counting as well potentially as having as having the potential for human happiness rather than something else. And I think the kind of theory that I sketch should be, be able to account for that. Thank you very much.